Well, as you know, I have been in a series lately. It's a series that I'm calling Show Us the Father. And today I'm going to minister another message in this series. It's a message I'm calling The Virtue of Magnified Mercy. And throughout these messages, it has been my heart's inner cry. It has been the desire of my heart to magnify maybe a couple handfuls of the precious virtues of the Father and Jesus Christ, of course. My desire has been to bring him up close and personal. The scriptures tell us that he's our Savior, our Father, but don't forget, he's our friend. We sang it in one of the songs this morning. I wanted us to see that he's always near us. He's never far away. If he feels far away, friends, that is just your mind playing games with you. But I'm telling you, he's up close and personal. He's involved in our daily activities. He's involved in our lives. He's attentive to every single need that we have to go through. So I wanted us to see that salvation, listen, is more than just a ticket to heaven. Sure, it will get me to heaven. Salvation is more than just fire insurance. Salvation is so much more robust than any of these things. Salvation is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the salvation of the world. There is no salvation as found outside of Jesus himself. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 declares that. It says, Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but that name of Jesus. He is the only way, not a way, but the way. Would you like to know why I am so passionate about the new covenant of mercy and grace? Number one, I've discovered that I don't do well <laughs> when I'm not walking in mercy, when I'm not walking in grace. I need them with me. Mercy and grace have a way of shaping the way I think, a way of shaping the way I act. It has a way of shaping the way I see and the way I speak. It has a way of shaping the way I reach out and touch other people. Mercy and grace calm my heart like nothing else. And through this consistent drip, how many of you know I've talked about a consistent drip? Because that's what happens. We have so much stuff that's trapped on the inside of us, so much of a mindset that has been built into strongholds, been built into doctrines, been built into belief systems over the years, that it takes a slow drip for it to flush out, if you will, all of these things that have been trapped in our mind, even from a child. So through the consistent drip of mercy and grace, you know what they do? They create a correlation. They create a connection, if you will, of the way I see the Father. And if I see the Father a certain way, then it doesn't take a giant leap for me to be able to see myself in the same manner. Through mercy and grace, I'm able to say to myself, I'm able to speak to myself, when the scriptures say, let the weak say, I am strong. What are we doing? We are saying that to ourselves. We are speaking those words to ourselves. And when I speak like that, I'm able to speak in the manner that I hear, first of all, in heaven. I hear the Father speaking these words into my heart. What kind of things does he say to me? He says things like, I am his beloved. In me, he is well pleased. Are those not the words that he said to Jesus? 
Are we not the sons of God, the daughters of God as well? Of course we are. So he says those same words. And I long for those words. I hear them all the time where he says, son, I'm proud of you. Son, you did well today. Son, I'm well pleased with you. I say things like I am declared righteous apart from works. It is not what I do that makes me righteous. It is Jesus Christ, the lover of my soul, who makes me righteous. I am declared righteous. You are declared righteous. Righteous means you are right with God. You are declared righteous based upon what Jesus did on the cross, not anything that you've done. And we are holy, friends. We are holy regardless of performance. How did we get holy? Well, I don't have the scripture right now, but it's one of my favorites. It's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. The scriptures say that we were made holy by Jesus's body on the cross. So if I see the Father as cold and rigid, if I see him as insensitive and disconnected with my own feelings, my own life, my own affairs, then guess what? Those characteristics are going to show up in my own life. The way I see him is the way I'm going to see me. The way I see him is the way I'm going to look at you. So if I see him like that, cold, rigid, distant, insensitive to my needs, disconnected with my life, then like I said, those characteristics will show up in my own life, even though none of those things are true about him. He is not cold. He is not insensitive. He is not firm in the sense that he's looking to beat us up when we mess up. No. But if I see the Father as loving and kind, gracious and merciful, then those are the very attributes and expressions that will manifest through my life. If I take in the merciful heart of the Father, do you know what it does for me? Do you know what it does to me? It releases mercy, not only in me, but it releases mercy through me. Through the revelation of the Father's mercy for me, I, in turn, am able to be more merciful to other people. First of all, more merciful to myself. How many of you know you need to give yourself mercy? Because we can beat ourselves up pretty good. In fact, I think we're better at beating ourselves up than anybody else has beaten us up. We need to be merciful. And if I see mercy working in the Father's life, then mercy is going to be working in my life. I'm more merciful to me. I'm more merciful to my wife. I'm more merciful to my children. I'm more merciful to my colleagues. I'm more merciful to my neighbor next door. I'm more merciful to a stranger. I'm more merciful, here's a good one for you, even to my enemies, even to them that would persecute me. Why? Because I've learned this from my father. My father is merciful. My father is gracious. The scriptures say he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Friends, if he treated us as our sins deserve, we'd be like one of these little spots on the floor over here. That would be about all that would be left of us. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't treat us like our sins deserve. Why? Because he has made us the righteousness of God in Christ. He has made us holy. He has planted us in the heart of Jesus Christ. And I know it's a hard one for people to understand, but he sees us exactly the way he sees his son the darling of heaven, Jesus Christ. So when you magnify something, it doesn't actually increase the size of the object. But what it does is it does make it bigger to you and it makes it closer to you. Let's see if I can drive this point home. If I was to hold an apple right there in my hand 
And I took one of the largest magnifying glasses and I pulled that magnifying glass in my right hand and I just put it over that apple. Guess what? That apple would grow in size. That apple would move closer to me. But let's ask the real question. Did the apple get bigger in size? No, the apple's the same size. Is the apple even an inch closer? No, the apple's the same distance away, but it got bigger to me. It got larger to me. It got closer to me. You say, what's your point, Pastor Mark? Friends, the father is as big and as close as he's ever going to get. He's as kind as he's ever going to be. He's as loving as he's ever going to be. And his faithfulness does not change, not even by a jot or a tittle. I mean, we're talking about microscopic stuff, by an atom, if you will. God's faithfulness does not change, and his mercy does not change. His love for us does not change. His kindness does not change. He cannot get bigger. He cannot get closer to us. If all of him already lives in all of us, how is he going to get bigger? How is he going to get closer? See, look, I'm in the furnace business, right? So I know something about furnaces. I know something about thermostats. And the one thing I know about that thermostat over there, if I tell it to make it 90 degrees in here, it's going to light the furnace, right? The flame in the furnace is no bigger if I say I want it to 90 in here or if I say I want it 65 in here. The flame doesn't grow in size. God doesn't grow in size, but he can to us. He can to our reality. But all of God, all of his majesty lives on the inside of us. He's already on the inside of us. But thanks to our sweetheart Jesus, when we look through the lens of the new covenant of grace and mercy, it's like a magnifying glass. It is when you look through the lens of the new covenant of grace, everything changes. Everything about Jesus is enlarged. Everything about Jesus is increased, amplified. Everything about Jesus becomes extravagant. Everything about him, well, you could say it this way, is magnified. How? When we look through the lens of the new covenant of grace. Through the new covenant of grace and mercy, we receive. We take hold of everything there is in Him. Did you know that it's impossible for God to become smarter or more powerful? Would you like to know why? It's because He's omniscient and He's omnipotent. Omniscience means He's all-knowing. Omnipotent means he's all-powerful, and God is both of these qualities. So it's impossible for God to get smarter. If he were going to get smarter, who would he learn from? Think about it. He knows everything, and he knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. Impossible. Where am I going with this? Oh, because it helps you to see if he can't get smarter and he can't get more powerful, that means he can't get more loving, he can't get more merciful, he can't get more gracious, he can't get more forgiving. Do you see this? Why? Because he's all of these things. He is all power. He is the all-sufficient one, the scriptures call him. Our daddy knows everything. There is nothing that he doesn't understand. And there's nothing that he doesn't understand about us. 
He knows us intricately. He knows what makes us tick. He really does. Our daddy is all powerful. There is nothing that he cannot help us with. And the next time you find yourself in a bind, in a pickle, if you want to call it, in a situation, a conundrum, if you will, the next time you find yourself there and there's only one place to look and that's up, just remember the father is all powerful. No matter what your situation is, he can bring you out of it. Now, if those statements are true, and I know they are, then that means there's not a single attribute that our Father can improve in. He's there, friends. He's already there. Even when it comes to grace and mercy, it's impossible for Him to become more gracious and more merciful. If the Father is going to become bigger and closer. And I think that is everybody's heart's cry. They're going, but I want him to be bigger in my life. I want him to feel like I'm closer to him. I get it. I get what you're saying. And if the Father is going to become bigger to you, if he's going to be closer to you in your heart, then we are going to have to magnify his virtues of grace and mercy. But how does one magnify grace and mercy? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you magnify grace and mercy? Does it begin with some sort of project to-do list? No, it doesn't begin with that. Are grace and mercy magnified through some sort of DIY approach, do-it-yourself approach? Absolutely not. The magnification of grace and mercy begins with a foundation. It begins with the foundation that Jesus Christ is our high priest and that through his once-for-all sacrifice, he has already made you perfect forever. Friends, I didn't make that up. If I did, I'd have a bestseller out there. But I'm telling you, that comes from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. He says, by one sacrifice, who was sacrificed? We sang about it this morning here. I see grace sealed by your sacrifice. I see love reaching for me. It begins with the foundation that Jesus is our high priest and that by one sacrifice, he's already made you perfect in his eyes. You say, perfect in my behavior? No, perfect in your spirit. The place that counts, the place where he lives. And that through that one sacrifice, he has finished the work and he has sat down at the right hand of his father. Can we just say, thank you, Jesus? <laughs> Come on, he finished the work and sat down at the right hand of the father. Magnified mercy is released when we see that Jesus is easily touched. He's acquainted with our sorrows. He's familiar with our ways. He's familiar with the feeling of our infirmities and our weaknesses. How do I know that? Because Jesus was a man. And the scriptures tell us that also, that he is easily touched by our infirmities, which literally means our weaknesses. The things we feel like we're weak in, he's easily touched because he can identify he was there as a man. Magnifying his mercy begins by seeing Jesus as the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, the one who bids us to come to the throne of grace. Isn't that awesome? He's the one who bids us to come to the throne of grace. So let me ask you a question. What in the world is the throne of grace? And where is this throne of grace located? You told me to come, Jesus. Is it in the closet over there? Is it in the back room? Where's this throne of grace at? What is this throne of grace? 
Is it some sort of golden chair that God sits upon in heaven? Friends, listen to me carefully. The throne of grace is Jesus Christ. Don't you see that? He's the grace man. He's our throne. The throne of grace is Jesus Christ. Quit looking for a physical throne, friends. Christ is our throne. He is our throne of grace. And that's why he bids us to come like he did with Peter on the sea when he said, come to me. He is the throne of grace. He is the personification of the mercy seat. See how he's the throne of grace? God is no longer just in a box somewhere, friends, carried by men with poles. No, God is in this box, the human body. Yes, he's carrying me, carrying my sins, first of all, carrying me, yes, carrying my thought life, if you will. Jesus is our throne of grace, the personification of the mercy seat, the place where the blood of the sacrificed lamb was sprinkled. We boldly come to Jesus to obtain mercy and receive grace. We see that word in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Look at these words. I love these words. The writer said, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Come on. Jesus, the Son of God. There it is. It's Jesus, the Son of God. And then these are some strange words. It says, Let us hold fast our profession. What? What does that mean? Let us hold fast our profession. I want you to fix your eyes on those words for a second. They're simple yet profound. He says, let us hold fast our profession. Behind the English words hold fast, we find the Greek word for strength. The strength that the writer of Hebrews refers to is not a, listen, it's not a passive strength, but rather an active strength. You see, an oak tree stands with passive strength. It is so powerful, but all it's got to do is just stand. That's passive strength. Do you see that? And we're like that in life at times. We stand in passive strength. But then there's times when the wind will blow and the hurricane force winds and the tornadoes may come. And then the oak tree is no longer just standing in passive strength. It relies on its root system. It's dug in, and now it's operating in this active power and strength. When he says, hold fast to our profession. Hold fast means to use strength. This is not passive strength. This is the power that God has given us. I'm not talking about going out and using your power on somebody. No, this is not this kind of power, friends. Jesus didn't do that. We don't do that. But I'm talking more about how you use this strength, how you use this active strength in your own heart, in your own mind. How many of you been on a roller coaster? Raise your hand. I'm not talking about a little kitty thing now. Come on. I'm talking about one of those screaming devil's boy that go upside down and they're flying that Mach 2 and your hair's on fire and everybody's screaming. How many of you rode one like that before? Come on. Yeah, I've been to Six Flags too. It's been about 40 years, but I've been there. <laughs> I've been there and I've rode all those roller coasters. And guess what? When you sit in the seat, you put a seat belt on and then there's this harness that comes down over you and the way you go, and I don't know what those things fly at, but in a sense, you would think that you were holding fast 
to the bars in front of you. But friends, you are not holding fast. You're holding on to. There's a difference, friends, between holding on to and holding fast to. You see, you're not the one that's holding that roller coaster on the tracks, are you? <laughs> no. You're not even the one that's holding yourself in your seat. No, there's a higher law in place. You know what it's called? It's called gravity. It's called centrifugal force. It's called a seatbelt. There's other things that are in place. So do you see the difference of holding on to and holding fast to? One is you use the God-given power, the God-given strength that he's put on the inside of you to make a difference. Number one, in your life by seeing grace. Sealed by his sacrifice, seeing love reaching for you. Powerful. Holding fast means to use strength. It means to seize the moment. It means to seize the opportunity. It means to retain so you don't lose your mind. It implies that we use our God-given strength and power to hold fast. Not to our salvation, that's a finished work but to our profession. This is what we're holding fast to, friends. Do you notice how it said, hold fast to our profession? That's what we're holding on to. And that's where it takes active strength, active power to hold on to what God has already put in your heart because the enemy likes to come along and say, really? People like to come along. Your own mind will play tricks on you, friends. It refers to us taking dominion. Dominion over what, you ask? Dominion over our thoughts. Friends, our brains are chock full of a lifetime of programming, a lifetime of natural thinking, a lifetime of things that even include old covenant ideology that got trapped in there as we were growing. And like centrifugal force, these old mindsets pin us to the wall of condemnation and guilt and shame and fear and passivity so that we would just use a passive strength when we need to use active strength. But our profession, our profession is a great strength that minimizes our muscle and magnifies his mercy. Do you see that? You got to get your muscles out of the way, friends. And you got to rely on the mercy of God, the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. Why is taking dominion over our thought life so important? Why is that so important? And I get it, man, because a big part of the body of Christ doesn't still get this yet. Why is taking dominion over our thought life so important? I'll tell you why. Because thoughts are like dominoes. And they get a little wobbly sometimes. And when that thought falls, it falls into the domino of desire. And when that domino falls, it falls into the desire of action. And when that domino falls of action, it falls into the domino of habit. And when that domino of habit falls, it falls into the domino of characteristic. And when that domino falls, it falls into the domino of your thought life. It's a cycle, friends, that is broken only. I'm telling you, I've not seen anything else work. It is broken only when we obtain mercy and find grace in Jesus' finished work. A cycle that is broken when we see that salvation is more than fire insurance, friends. You see, I grew up in a church, a fire and brimstone preaching church. 
And I remember one minute after I gave my heart to Jesus, I begged him with all my heart to kill me and take me to heaven. Why? Because all I saw him was his fire insurance. And I figured, well, okay, we got our insurance paid up now. Let's, we might as well go right now because honestly, I thought in my heart I was going to blow it. I was going to mess it up. I was going to undo what he did that night. Within one minute, I was begging God, God, I know I'm right with you. Please just take my life right now. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, son, I didn't save you to kill you. Son, I saved you because I loved you. And mercy and grace showed up and said no to your former way of living and yes to becoming a child of God. Mercy showed up. Did I deserve salvation that night? No, but mercy. God had mercy on me. God had grace on me. Salvation is more than fire insurance. Friends, salvation is a person, namely Jesus Christ. Christ, mercy and grace. You know what they do? They bring the Father up close. They bring Him up in a personal way. It's like a magnifying glass, like I said. When you look at Him through the lens of the new covenant of grace, that Jesus has finished it all, that you are not the one holding yourself on the tracks. He is the one doing that for you. Then you know what you can do? You can take a real rest. Just rest with Daddy all day long. So what do we hold fast to? It's at our profession, right? The word profession comes from a compound Greek word. I know we pronounce this word homologia, but the actual Greek of it is homologia. Homologia breaks down into two words. Homos, which means the same. Homo means the same, okay? Homos is the same. And then the word lego. Lego, like Lego and my ego type stuff, right? Is Lego, which means to speak. So when we are instructed to hold fast to our profession, it literally means this. Let's see the next slide. We are to use our God-given strength and power to take dominion over our thoughts by speaking the same thing that the new covenant speaks over us. Hamalagia speaks of agreement or one accord. This is the power, friends, of our words, that we would speak words that would be congruent, words that would agree, words that would fall into accord with the language of the new covenant of grace and mercy. Now, if the new covenant tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, and that's Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and then we speak something that is contrary to that scripture, we have stepped outside of homologia because we're no longer in agreement with the word. The word said this, I said something different. There's no power, friends. You have no power. How many of you would like to ride that roller coaster just standing up with no harness or nothing else on it, right? No, you're, you're happy for the power that comes down over top of you and the belt around you, right? And the power of centrifugal force and the power of gravity. We're thankful for those kind of things when we're on a ride like that. But you have no power when you just make up stuff or you say things that are not congruent with the new covenant of grace. And when we're doing that, we are not exercising our God-given strength and power. We are not taking dominion over our thoughts. And like dominoes, our thoughts fall into desires, which fall into actions, which fall into habits, which fall into characteristics, which fall back into thoughts. 
It's a cycle that cannot be broken unless, unless we speak the same thing that the Father speaks over us. If there's one reason why you ought to keep studying the Word, that would be a good reason right there to see what is Daddy saying? What is the Father saying to me? Right? We cannot hold fast our profession unless we sing the song of the new covenant. There's a lyric for the new covenant. There's a melody for the new covenant. If the Father says to us, allow me to magnify mercy in your time of need, then our response is, Father, <laughs> magnify thy mercy, right? We don't say, oh no, I'm just a dirty worm. No, we don't say things like that. We don't say, I'm not worthy for you to come and visit under my roof. No, those are all examples of us not walking in hamalagia, friends. Again, back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14. Now let's add verses 15 and 16, see where it goes. Seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now we know what this means. It means to use the God-given strength that he's given us to speak what he speaks, right? The God-given wisdom, the God-given power to speak what he speaks and then watch that come into harmony. Watch that come together in a force that is so powerful. Next scriptures. For we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched. Didn't I tell you that? With the feeling of our infirmities. I said that a second ago. We do not have a high priest. Jesus is that high priest, remember? And we don't have one that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. I love that. It's not only I get to come to Christ, but I get to come boldly. I think sometimes our actions or the way we come to Him betray who we really are in Christ. We don't come as sons sometimes. We come as beggars. We come as servants sometimes. No, you are a son. You are a daughter. My kids do not have to knock on my door when they come over to my house. They are sons. They are daughters. But I would expect the neighbor if he came over. I would expect a hired hand to knock on my door before they came in or we'd have to have a little conversation, okay? I'd have to show them some mercy and grace, right? All right? <laughs> but it says right there that we get to come boldly. Come on, man. We get to come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Isn't that awesome? Think about that for a second. We get to come boldly. It was his idea. It wasn't ours. He said, I want you to come to me, the throne of grace, and I want you to come boldly. That means your chin is up. You're walking with confidence, total confidence that he loves me, that he has no condemnation for me, that he's going to be merciful to me, that he's going to be good to me. Sure, I'm going to come with confidence. Let me ask you, what do we do at the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace? What is it that we do there? <laughs> Friends, we don't do anything. We just receive. We just take hold of. We take hold of Christ through what? Through our profession. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. 
the scripture says no one can call him Lord. No one can call him Savior except by the Spirit. It's our profession. You're my Lord. We come with our profession. The doing has already been done by Jesus. We simply agree with the language of the new covenant and speak the same things that we hear the Father speaking over us. How do we learn to hear his voice? Number one, I would say the word. You've got to go to the word and then you meditate on the word. He is going to speak to you. He's going to put thoughts in your heart and in your mind, impressions sometimes. Just so many ways that he can speak to us. The doing has been done by Jesus, friends. We simply agree with the language of the new covenant. We take, we get a hold of the Father's compassion. See, that's what mercy is. Mercy is compassion. Compassion. Did you notice that at the throne of grace, that this is not a place that we bring offerings. It's not a place where we come repentant. It's not a place that we come to brag on all the things that he's done for us. No, no, sir, no, ma'am. The throne of grace is available for us so that we can come and that we can receive and that we can get hold of Jesus, the supplier of everything that we need in life for godliness. Now I want you to see this word obtain. The word obtain comes from the Greek concordance. It is the word lambano. It says, take, receive, get a hold of. This is the word that the scriptures use when it says, obtain mercy. So what are you saying? When you come to this throne of grace, he said, I want you to take it. Don't just be a, a spectator. I want you to take it. I want you to receive my mercy. I want you to get a hold of my mercy because you won't forget it once it's touched you. And what is it we get a hold of? Mercy, obtain mercy. That's his compassion. How many of you need compassion? Come on. We need compassion, don't we? And then he says that you not only obtain mercy, but he said you find grace. Where do you find it at? Well, it's the throne of grace. Surely there's going to be grace there, right? I mean, a Pepsi-Cola company's got to have Pepsi, right? Come on. You find grace at the throne of grace. And I love this word for find. Hurisco. This word when he says, and you find grace. It literally means to perceive. Suddenly you have an awareness there. You can see grace. I see grace. Sealed by your sacrifice. Remember, I see love reaching for me. Precious blood washes and cleanses me. Healing flows, setting me free. So at this throne of grace, who is this? This is Christ. In us, the hope of glory, living on the inside of us. We don't have to go find the throne. It's here. It's on the inside of us. At the throne of grace, there is no condemnation, just compassion. By seeing Jesus, we receive. We become the beneficiaries of everything at the throne of grace. At the throne of grace, we discover the virtue of magnified mercy. The scriptures invite us to come to the throne of grace. And when we come, again, we are told to come boldly. Boldly. How can we be so bold when we go to such a lofty and sacred place? 
How can we come before the one who is high and lifted up and be bold? I'll tell you how. Because we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, the scriptures say. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is easily touched. And he can say, Daddy, I understand what they're going through. Daddy, understand how they feel. Easily touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Therefore, we are able to be bold and we are able to take hold our profession. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection between confidence and receiving? Do you see the connection between confidence and seizing, taking hold of? Do you see the connection between confidence and using our God-given strength? our active and even times passive strength. When Jesus stood before Pilate, that was passive strength. When he said, look, if you're the son of God, do all these things and I'll let you go. Passive strength. Because he knew it was the end of his time. But then there were times where Jesus used active strength. When he cast out the demons of the man, the Gadaronian demoniac, they call him, and he just said, come out, come out, powerful strength. So we can be bold because we're told to be bold. We can have confidence because we have this great high priest. His name is Jesus. And he's able to identify with us as a man. Do you see the connection between confidence and taking dominion over our thoughts? Do you see the connection between confidence and obtaining mercy and finding grace? I do. Friends, Jesus is the one who dispenses mercy and grace because he is able to identify with our weaknesses and our temptations, and he loves us. Did you know that it's impossible for God to become more loving more gracious, or even more pleased with us. Now that will make the religious people very, very mad. It's impossible for God to become more loving, impossible for God to become more gracious, more forgiving, more pleased with us. That seems like a little bit of a stretch, doesn't it, when, you, when I say something like that? You say, how can you say something like that, Pastor Mark? Because unlike us, God doesn't require stimulants. He doesn't need a shot of adrenaline a secretion from one of the happy hormones. How many of you know about those happy hormones? You know about those? Your body consists of four happy hormones. Dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, and serotonin. These are all God-given hormones, powerful hormones that work to do things like relieve stress and pain. Hormones that actually promote trust and empathy in a relationship, hormones that motivate us and work to improve our memory and our attention. I'm talking about hormones that are responsible for doing things like regulating our sleep and our digestive system and even our appetite. And when these God-given hormones are released in our bodies, they change our mood. How many of you get excited over a piece of cake? You want to know why? Because eating that cake is releasing some of these hormones. That's why. It's not just what you think it is. 
Exercise releases hormones. A hug with someone. Petting your dog or cat can release these kind of hormones. We don't even know that, but behind the scene, we're secreting all these different types of hormones that work in different ways. A kiss from your spouse can release, well, okay, some hormones, okay? <laughs> oh, man, I didn't expect to go there, Lord, but I think uh, are we all adults here. Okay, come on. It actually physically does something to our body. It changes our mood. We experience pleasure. But here's the deal. The Father's happiness, His pleasure toward us, is not secreted because of our gymnastics. It's not secreted because of our exercises. The Father is pleased with us because of Jesus' obedience even unto death. That's why the Father is pleased with us. His happy hormones are continuously flowing, friends. There's no shut-off valve. Do you see that? He's always happy with us. He's never angry, mad with us. He's happy with us. Now, the thought of such virtues should give us all great hope in knowing that God is not growing in mercy toward us. You see, because if he's growing in mercy towards me, then I have to ask a very obvious question. What is it that I'm doing or what is it that I need to do for God to be more merciful to me, to receive more mercy? Does that make sense? Friends, you are not doing anything. Jesus did it all. And all the virtue of magnified mercy awaits us every single morning, even before you get out of bed. You want to see that scripture? It's found in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. How many of you know this scripture? <laughs> I love this scripture. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They, what's they? The mercies of God, right? They are new every morning, Great is thy faithfulness. Jeremiah is the writer of this book, and he said, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in him. I want to draw your attention to a word that would be very easily overlooked because it's a small word, but it's got a big heart. It is the word say. Do you see that? Jeremiah wrote, I say to myself, behind the word say is the same Hebrew word that God spoke when he began creation. Look at this next scripture. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. We didn't get very far into the word, did we? We're only in the third verse here. And it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. That word said right there is the same word that Jeremiah used over here when he said, I say to myself. You see, if God can speak into chaos, if God can speak into darkness, if God can speak into oblivion and he can bring light out of it, he can bring life forth, then so can we. Why? Because he lives in the fullness on the inside of us. And so we often, what we do is we settle for chaos in our life. We settle for darkness because we're operating in a passive strength rather than the active strength that I spoke about earlier. Jeremiah said, I say to myself. I think it was David who said, I encourage myself in the Lord. You've got to learn to start talking to yourself. 
I talk to myself all the time. I talk to myself. I talk to the Father. I just talk. I say to myself, self. Here's what the word says. Jeremiah said, I say to myself. Do you remember that Greek word I was telling you about a second ago, homologia? This is the equivalent of what Jeremiah is doing right here. He's saying the same thing that he knew God said in the beginning God created. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. So Jeremiah knew that there was power, power to be harnessed in the word. And so we got to catch ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we say things and we wish, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Well, reel it back in as best as you can, but just, just learn from it. Don't beat yourself up. Don't put yourself under condemnation. That's why the scriptures would say, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Why do you think it says that? Because if you do that, you won't say half of the things you would have normally said. If you take time to think it through, like, is that going to really build this person up? Is that going to encourage them? Come on, we're all a work in process now. Come on, is that right? I, I get it. I really do get it. But Jeremiah knew the language of the Lord, knew the language of his God when God formed everything and he reached all the way back and said, I'm going to do what I heard my father do. It means to say the same things that I hear my father say, that I hear Christ say, that I hear even as equally important is that I hear the new covenant say. And isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus said, I don't do anything. I don't say anything. Come on. He said, I got to hear my father say it first. And so there are times where Jesus wasn't in a rush to go somewhere. Why? Because he's waiting for the father to say. How about the four days for Lazarus, huh? <laughs> you know, they were a day away from there. They could have just ran back real quick. But Jesus intentionally waited. Because he's waiting not just for Lazarus to die, Lazarus was already dead when they got there. He said, look, he's sleeping. He knew Lazarus was already dead. But Jesus was waiting on the Father to speak into his heart so that he could say, this is what I hear my Father say. I don't know, Daddy. I've never been down this road before. Never had a guy dead for four days. I don't know exactly what to do here. What are we going to do here today, Daddy? Daddy says, you're going to stand out in front of that tomb when you get there, son. And you're just going to say, roll away the stone. Lazarus! Come forth. Jesus heard his father say those words first. And they were echoing, no doubt, in his heart when he stood in front of the tomb. And so he stood there with confidence. He stood there with boldness. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Because he was operating in this active power, this active strength. And he was in agreement with what the father said. Lazarus had no choice. Lazarus had to come forth. And they came forth wrapped like a mummy. You know the story, all in bandages. And Jesus looked at the people that were standing there and he said, loose him. Take off his grave clothes. Let him go. And friends, that is the spirit of the new covenant. The new covenant says, look, you've got some grave clothes on. And we need to take your grave clothes off. What are your grave clothes? Condemnation, fear. Guilt, shame, performance, anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I'm telling you, friends, those are grave clothes. And God says, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. It's so beautiful. So Jeremiah 
and Jesus are saying what God said, and it was releasing this strength, this power. They were holding fast to their profession and releasing power. Where? In the earth, in the form of grace and truth. All this power is not just for you. Friends, I don't go to work and then just put all my money in the bank and tell my wife, you don't get any. This power is not just for me. My wealth is not just for me. She has access to it too. Probably more hours of the day than I do, okay? <laughs> she does really good, amen? She put the Christmas tree up yesterday with the grandkids. It looks beautiful. I take dominion over my thoughts by hearing what the Father says. I take dominion over my thoughts and I take dominion over all of those falling dominoes, friends. I take dominion over the erroneous teachings that have proliferated my heart over the years that daddy is somehow far away. He's not far away, friends. He lives on the inside of us. I take dominion over the nonsense that his mercies are new when I deserve them. It's not true. His mercies are new every day. Isn't that what the scripture says? Absolutely. No, friends, his mercies are new every morning, regardless if I deserve them or not. That's the virtue of magnified mercy up close and personal. Did you know that it's impossible for God to become more forgiving, more righteous, and more merciful? There is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that he can do to add to his perfection or to increase in virtue. And I'm very, very thankful for that. In the scriptures, they contrast two mountains. One mountain is Mount Sinai, and the other one is Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the mountain that the law was given to Moses on, and you know what it did? It kept you at a distance from God. Mount Zion is the mountain of magnified mercy and grace the one that brings you up close and personal, the one that invites you to climb it, the one that invites you to come up and let's have a picnic together. Through these mountains, we can actually see something bigger than mountains. We actually see the two covenants. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. It says, For you have not come, as did the Israelites in the wilderness, to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to gloom and darkness, and a raging windstorm. That's a scary sound of mountain, isn't it? And to the blast of a trumpet, and a sound of words, such that those who heard it begged that nothing more be said to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a wild animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned to death. Next scripture. Look at what it says. In fact, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, he said, I am filled with fear and trembling. Then it says this. It says, but you, meaning the body of Christ, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels in festive gathering, and to the general assembly and assembly of the firstborn who are registered as citizens in heaven, and to God who is judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, the redeemed in heaven, who have been made perfect. Didn't I tell you, friends, we've been made perfect. Been made perfect, bringing them into their final glory. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
uniting God and man. God is no longer distant from man. We are united with God. We are united with Christ. We are one with Christ. We're not just in Christ, and He's not just in us. We are one with Christ. I love this. It says, uniting God and man. Look what it says. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of mercy. Do you see where the mercy comes from, friends? It's always been about blood. Whether it's the mercy seat on the ark or wherever it's at, it's always been about blood. But in this case here, it's the blood of Christ. And he says, And to the sprinkled blood which speaks of mercy, a better and nobler and more gracious message than the blood of Abel which cried out for vengeance. I want you to see what Noah Webster wrote in his 1828 dictionary. That's a lot of moons ago, friends. That's almost 200 years ago. Here's how he defined mercy. He said it's that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. He says, in this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? That which comes nearest to it is grace. Mercy implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, pity or compassion, and clemency, but exercised only towards offenders. Mercy is a distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. So throughout the scriptures, we see a merciful God. One of the most valuable lessons that his disciple Peter learned was a lesson about how deep the mercies of God really are. Jesus had finished the Passover meal with his disciples. You know what they did after they were done? He washed their feet, they sung a hymn, and then they all went out together to the Mount of Olives. Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world, and having loved everyone, and having demonstrated the virtue of magnified mercy, Jesus then said these words to his disciples. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Said the same what? They said the same thing Peter said. Now, is there any strength? Is there any power in a message saying the same thing Peter says when it's not the same thing Jesus said? Is there any power in that? Are they really using any real strength to get anything done here? No. The other disciples, they agreed with Peter. They said the same thing that Peter said. But it was not what Jesus said. 
Now let me ask you the question. Is Peter walking in Hamalagia? No. How do we know that? Because he said the very opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're all going to deny me. You're all going to be scattered. And Peter said, no, that's not going to happen. Friends, this is why it's so important to understand the word, to know the word and know the heartbeat of the new covenant so that we can release power in our lives to handle every situation we find ourselves in by speaking that which he speaks. It empowers us. He said the opposite of what Jesus said. Later that same evening, as we know the story, Jesus moves on to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he poured out blood, sweat, and tears. Our Savior steps in front of his crucifixion. The disciples lie sleeping. When Jesus needs them the most, they're asleep. And so a band of men come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, and they did. He was taken before the Sanhedrin where he was interrogated by the high priest Caiaphas. Meanwhile, Peter had followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Now, Peter, part of it is he doesn't want to break his word, even though it wasn't the right word. He said it, he meant it, now he's here to represent it. I've come to watch what they do to my Jesus, and if I have to go down swinging, that's the way it's going to be. This is his heart for coming, friends. It's his heart for following this entourage of guards. But let's take a look at what happened. Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again. And with an oath, he said, I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. He said, for your accent gives you away. He says, basically, one, I think one version says, your accent betrays you. Your speech betrays you. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken when he said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Can I talk to somebody today that can identify with a time in your life where you felt like you had broken God's heart. You had disappointed Him. And you wept bitterly. Is there a time like that? I've got news for you, friends. His happy hormones never shut off. They never shut off. Yes, He wants better for us, but for our sake. 
We sang that song this morning, I'm so secure. God does not fall apart because we do. I'm so secure. You're here with me. You're here inside of me. He wept bitterly. I wasn't sure about this, so last night I thought, you know what, I better check on this before I preach it. Make sure. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. And I noticed that Matthew and Mark and Luke all pick up this account of Peter's failure. They all pick it up. But the strange thing is that none of those first three Gospels speak of Peter's restoration. John would write his Gospel many years later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I can only imagine that John probably had access. Maybe somebody brought him the parchments. They brought him the, the scrolls, whatever it may be, of Matthew's and Mark's and Luke's gospel. It's many, it's several decades later that he's writing it. And he probably came across that narrative. And the apostle John, whose name literally means grace, realized, you left this undone. You didn't finish the story. So I was going to end my book another way, but now I'm going to go back and finish your story. You forgot to show mercy. You forgot to magnify mercy. Wasn't that mercy when Jesus stood on the shoreline and they had been fishing all night long? and caught nothing, and Jesus had cast your net to the right side of the boat. That's mercy. That's grace, friends. When they came ashore, and Jesus had bread, fresh-baked bread, and fish frying, mercy and grace, and he says, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you left that out. It's not a complete story. And then when Jesus took Peter aside, and he began to ask him those questions that if someone got into your face and asked you, you'd feel really uncomfortable. That question. Do you love me? Peter said, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. In case you didn't hear me, I've got to ask you again. Do you love me? And take care of my little lambs. Do you love me? Peter said, you know I love you. He said, then take care of my sheep. That was restoration, friends. That was mercy. What a beautiful way to do it. Other than just to put your arm around somebody and say, you know what, you're just forgiven for what you did back there in the courtyard. You know, I'm, I'm forgiving you. No. Jesus had this intimate moment with him that said, Peter, this whole kingdom is going to be built upon my mercy and my grace and my love for you. I'm so happy John saw that because John's last word that he penned would be those words, that story, that narrative, magnifying the mercy of Christ. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, we find these words. Paul wrote, finally, 
brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, he said, I want you to think on these things. In other words, he was saying, look, if you're going to change the way you speak, if you're going to change the way you respond, if you're going to change the way you deal with life in general, he says, look, it starts with what you think about. I want to be honest with you. I, I really didn't want to say this, but I mean, I have shut the news off for several weeks now. I've not watched it. I deleted Facebook and Messenger from my phone. If you don't get a response from me anytime soon, it's because I don't have it on my phone anymore. I just got tired of the whole thing, to be honest with you. And I have it because it's a ministry tool for this, and I, and I like it for that reason. I'm not condemning anybody for that. But I finally had to shut this stuff off because it was interfering. It was getting mixed in with the virtues of mercy and grace. And I found myself, you know, I don't feel as merciful toward you. I don't feel as gracious towards you. It's because of what I'm taking in. Friends, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. Hear my heart on this thing. Do you get it? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not asking you to do anything you don't want to do. But do you notice here in Philippians 4.8, it doesn't say whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, and it doesn't list Facebook, it doesn't list Twitter, it doesn't list all those other things to think on those things. No, friends, it's saying whatever is of a good report. He said, that is what I want you to think about. That is what will change your life. That's what will get the ape off your back, the monkey off your back. That is what will do it. I'm being honest with you. It's working. It's working. It's fresh, but it's working. There is an enormous amount of people, including believers, that see God like he's the Wizard of Oz. He's the man behind the curtain. See that curtain over there? He's the man behind the curtain. Unapproachable, demanding, and very scary. Come on. You guys have all watched that show. You know he's behind the curtain, controlling all the controls. God is not controlling you. He's not controlling me, friends. He's given us free will to worship him and to love him. We see him like he's the guy behind the curtain. Unapproachable, scary, Rawr! breathing out fire and catching people on fire and everything. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you interpret the scripture that invites us to come to the throne of grace? Does the thought of that alone rattle you like it did the tin man when he stood before the Wizard of Oz? Is it a fearful and terrifying experience like Moses experienced on Mount Sinai? If it feels that way to you, if that's your reality, then you have a malformed understanding of the Father's heart and you have overlooked magnified mercy. Some of my closing scriptures are found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Look at these words. Oh, we've come full circle, Daddy. But God is so rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Wealthy. Rich people like to give stuff away when they're so wealthy. God is rich in mercy. And He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. 
It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible, I love this, wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. That's mercy. As shown in all that he has done for us, who are united with Christ Jesus, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And it says, and you can't take credit for this, it is the gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Do you see, when you find grace, you're going to find mercy. You're going to find the Father's love. And you're going to find that he's rich. He's just as rich in mercy as he is in grace. He's just as rich in grace as he is in love. Remember, his attributes do not diminish. Friends, at the throne of grace, we do not find fire and billows of smoke and loud intimidating noises, nor do we find disappointment. At the throne of grace, we find love and acceptance. We find respite and grace. We find mercy, magnified mercy. At the throne of our gracious God, we find Daddy's heart and Daddy's desire to help us in our time of need. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, look at these words. But when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Thank you, Father. We didn't do anything to deserve this magnified mercy. He didn't save us because of the righteous things we've done, but he saved us because of his mercy. Next scriptures. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us, look at that, confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Confidence is that boldness, friends. You can't be bold without confidence and you can't be confident without boldness, friends. He gave us this confidence. How? Through His mercy, through his grace, friends, nothing that we have done. And my final scripture. We went back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, this time from the New Living Translation. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. It is my prayer that we are beginning to see the Father. We're beginning to see Jesus. We're beginning to see the precious, sweet Holy Spirit in an up-close and very personal way. They never distance themselves from us and they are involved 
literally in every aspect of our lives. Let me ask you a question. How many times throughout life do you suppose that death attempted to consume you, but because of the Lord's mercies, his compassions failed not? Jeremiah wrote that his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What kind of mercies am I talking about? I'm talking about magnified mercies. Mercies that all can see. Mercies that are so obvious, everybody sees it. Friends, this might be a great time to say to ourselves, speak to ourselves, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Friends, there's no doubt but that we are shaped by the very things that we meditate on. Thoughts fall like dominoes into desires. Desires fall like dominoes into actions. Actions fall like dominoes into habits. Habits fall like dominoes into characteristics. Characteristics fall like dominoes into our thought life again. It's a cycle, but it can be very positive when we choose to think on whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, it can be a very good experience. One of the greatest lessons that I've learned in my Christian life, and it took me so many years to learn it, is learning to say the same thing that the new covenant says. The new covenant says, it is finished. The new covenant says, at the throne of grace, we obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The new covenant says, hold fast our profession, which means that we are to use active strength to seize and take dominion over our natural thinking and anything that is contrary to the new covenant of mercy and grace. The word profession comes from the Greek word homologia. It means to say the same words, to speak like Christ speaks, the words of Christ, words that bring agreement and release power. Friends, we have not come to the fearful and terrifying Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We are made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, uniting God and man and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of mercy. How rich is this mercy that I'm talking about this morning? <laughs> very, very rich! In fact, it's so rich that Noah Webster defined mercy in his 1828 dictionary by saying there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy. In other words, Noah was saying, I generally like to list a few synonyms when I put a word in my dictionary, but I can't seem to find one for mercy. 
Because it's so hard for me to even understand and it's hard for me to explain. Friends, I believe I can speak for all of us when I say there is nothing so comforting than to know that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. That throne of grace is Jesus Christ. He is the one we approach to obtain magnified mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I want to thank you so much. You have enlarged my faithometer. It's off the chart right now. As I see the goodness of the Lord, that we are planted in Christ Jesus, like Mount Zion. It's not a fearful mountain. It's not a terrifying mountain. It's a mountain that we get to walk up together. It's a mountain that we get to enjoy together. I thank you, Father, that magnified mercy and grace will always be within reach of each other because we need them both. And Father, I thank you as this reality that it's already done, it's already finished, it's already complete. Jesus has sat down in heaven and we are seated in Christ Jesus with him. Help us in our own hearts when we think about approaching this throne of grace. It's not a place, it's a person. This person is Christ. So I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, as this reality, this reality of your mercy, this reality of your love is taking root and growing up and out of our hearts and our minds, moving things out of the way that have been stuck there for so long. I thank you, Father, that we are not pinned to the wall of condemnation. We are resting in the finished work of Christ. And you are so beautiful, Jesus. All the glory, all the honor, all the power, all the praise. And you deserve all of that. So Father, help us as we go our way to, to realize the power of our words. That when we come into agreement with what we say, what we speak, it releases an energy. It releases a strength to do amazing things, to build up this kingdom of your dear son. In Jesus' name. Amen.